the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day, and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead, and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney, and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And as I've shared with you in the past, in addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I'm both a master of the laws of taxation as well as a master of the laws of intellectual property. Now, because of my education, my training, my life experiences, my life observation, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families, within communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. And I also practice some related fields, that is to say, debt wealth management, estates and trust, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference point, as they relate to personal, familial, community, and small business finance, I've spent the greater part of the last 40 years, both before And after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the financial independence, and the overall autonomy of women, persons, and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And as I've shared with you before, because I grew up as a military brat and also helped create one with my former spouse, um, I realize firsthand how hard it can be economically for our citizen soldiers, our citizen sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals have separated from the service. I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And I've been hearing from more and more of you. So thanks. Keep it coming. And when the situation is right, I'm sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves the targets and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of financial elder abuse you could ever imagine that is running rampant in our society today. So I'm coming to you again today to discuss some of the financial and legal issues confronting individuals, families, and small business owners. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that is tailored 
to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully to provide you at least a general outline of some of the key issues that will help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I believe you need to have assist you if you have a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your other assets. Now, notwithstanding the fact that our very form of government is at an inflection point and may unfortunately in the next few years or even the next few months fall into that void where all those other collective forms of government started out with a goal of creating laws of, by, and for the people the government serves and not just a handful of folks um, because they have the power and the money to get votes and then after they get the votes they need just never leave power um, I am very concerned about our society now, but but again because I live in two worlds or at least two worlds I live in the world of realism but I'm also a person of faith and so I hope and pray that I am wrong and that our current form of government will survive such that for the first few weeks of 2022, it had been my plan to provide you all with an overview of the new batch of state and federal laws that took effect on January 1, 2022 that have an impact on us as individuals, families, and small business owners. So I started down that path last week. But because I've heard from so many of you this week asking me to please explain or try to explain what's up with this filibuster that you keep hearing about and the two voting rights bills that the Democrats had wanted to pass by this coming Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I'm going to take a, a detour and attempt to explain these these terms and what they mean and then we'll get back on track uh, after after we find out what's going to happen in the Senate. First off, what is the filibuster and why is it causing such angst and heartburn among certain members in the Senate and the president for that matter and members throughout our society? Well, according to the United States Senate's own glossary of terms that you can find at www.senate.gov forward slash about forward slash glossary, the term filibuster means, and I quote, an attempt to block or delay Senate action on a bill or other matter by debating it at length by offering numerous procedural motion or by any other delaying or obstructive action, end quote. Now, a related term that you should note uh, is the term cloture, not closure, but cloture, C-L-O-T-U-R-E, which in that same glossary states, and I quote, is a procedure used in the Senate to place a time limit on consideration of a bill or other matter to overcome or deter a filibuster. So the filibuster and then the antidote to the filibuster is cloture. And see also Senate Rule 22 that kind of explains how these things come together. 
Now, cloture is the only formal procedure in the Senate parliamentary rules, that's Rule 26, that, I'm, I'm sorry, Rule 22, that can force an end to the filibuster if invoked. It allows the Senate to limit consideration of a pending matter to 30 additional hours of debate, then the issue has to come up for a vote. Now, according to the online research platform ThoughtCo.com, located at that address, perhaps the most well-known use of cloture came when the Senate invoked it as a rule, that again is Rule 22, after a 57-day filibuster against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That was when Southern lawmakers stalled the debate over the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which included a ban on lynching, included in that they kept that up until the Senate mustered enough votes for that cloture action. So for a more detailed narrative on the intersection of filibuster and cloture, there is a great overview in at the Senate. So that again is senate.gov forward slash about forward slash powers dash procedures forward slash filibusters plural dash cloture forward slash overview and you can get some really good insight into it. Now the second areas, what are the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act? Well, first, the Freedom to Vote Act, um, it's a a really um, expansive bill, that's the word. Uh, It does several things. It expands early voting, it expands voting by mail, it creates a national standard for voter ID, as opposed to having each one of those areas done on a state-by-state uh, basis. It enacts automatic uh, voter registration, like when you hit 18, you're automatically uh, registered to vote. It establishes a bipartisan commission to draw the lines of legislative districts and requires redistricting not in favor of any one party. Now, that particular provision has the potential to create scores of newly competitive districts and supporters say would combat partisan polarization in the House and thereby ban partisan gerrymandering. Um, It also imposes disclosure requirements, that is to say the overall bill, disclosure requirements on the donors of political parties to go after the Citizen United decision that basically allowed corporations uh, to become citizens and make charitable contributions and be treated just like you and me who go to the bathroom. Okay, and um, it also lets uh, dark money hide. So that's what Citizen United did, and that's what part of this uh, Freedom to Vote Act would make go by-by. And it also has a funding provision where for every dollar contributed to a fund that could be used for people who would agree to only be funded uh, by public funds, $6. And it also makes Election Day a national holiday, the way it is in some other countries. And then there's the John Lewis Act, which would 
reintroduce parts of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that have uh, recently been made impotent by the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County. Uh, In particular, court decisions have removed the need for states with histories of discrimination to obtain preclearance when they want to do anything that has to do with voting. They have to first go to the Justice Department uh, to get preclearance. So um, basically, um, so so you can see why many, including me, believe that we need to have these two bills go forward and we need to do whatever we need to do uh, uh, to have the filibuster uh, go bye-bye. Otherwise, these voting rights acts will never come to fruition. So when we come back, I'm going to go over why I need, uh, why I believe we need the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act by looking at them in the historical context. But first, we're going to take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. So welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion on why I believe we need to move forward with the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. And I propose to do that by giving us a historic context of why it is we need these bills in the first place and the litany of bills that have led us to this point. So before the break, I I shared with you the fact that we believe, people who agree with me believe, that The Senate needs to use Rule 22 concerning the cloture requiring a supermajority of senators to either bring a bill to the floor to commence the debate and or to cut off the debate in order to vote on the bill. And because there is a 50-50 split in the Senate, even if with Vice President Harris's vote, there and there were no um, Democratic defections, which we know is not the case with one of our senators from Arizona and one of our senators from West Virginia, vehemently opposed to doing away with or modifying Rule 22, um, which I have to let you know is not required by the United States Constitution, even if the Senate minority gets its way, and if Senate Majority Leader Schumer is able to use the recasting of a bill dealing with the National Space and Aeronautics Administration to fold those two bills into, because that bill has already been voted on, and then be able to commence the debate on the bills and show the American public how necessary they are, it appears that without the two dissenting senators and the fact that no Republicans support these bills, these bills may actually already be dead on arrival. And uh, that's something that I believe will harm our democratic form of government for years to come, if not permanently, because um, what's going on around in the individual states are creating huge barriers for certain members of our society to have their franchise. 
So let's kind of take a little quick survey of key pieces of civil rights legislation that have been enacted in this country. And I we did a show on the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation, and that was in 1863, and it declared that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforth shall forever be free. And then in 1865, there was the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which abolished slavery and involuntary servitude except as for punishment of a crime. And then in 1866, there was the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and it declared all male persons born in the United States to be citizens without distinction of race or color or previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude. So that made black men uh, free. Then we had the 14th Amendment in 1868, and it granted citizenship and equal uh, civil and legal rights to African Americans and slaves who had been emancipated after the American Civil War. Then the 15th Amendment, uh, 1870, prohibits the federal and state governments from denying a citizen the right to vote based on their race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Then there is the Civil Rights Act of 1871, and it's an act of the United States Congress which empowered the president to suspend the writ of habeas corpus and to combat the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacy organizations. Then there's the Civil Rights Act of 1875, in which the United States federal law that was enacted during the Reconstruction era in response to civil rights violations of African Americans and was to protect all citizens in their civil and legal rights, giving them equal treatment in public accommodations, public transportation, and prohibited exclusion from jury service. And there was the Civil Rights Act of 1957, the new act established the civil rights section of the Justice Department and empowered federal prosecutors to obtain court injunctions against interference with the right to vote. Then there was a Civil Rights Act of 1960. It was a federal law that established federal inspection of local voter registration polls and introduced penalties for anyone who obstructed someone's attempt to register to vote. Then there's the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended segregation in public places and banned employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, and is considered one of the crowning legislative achievements of the civil rights movement. The very next year, uh, the Civil Rights Act uh, that is to say, it was the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and it was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson and it aimed to overcome legal barriers at state and levels, state and local levels that prevented African Americans from exercising their right to vote as guaranteed by the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Then there's the Civil Rights Act of 1968. 
It defines housing discrimination as a refusal to sell or rent dwellings to any person because of his or her race, color, religion, or national origin. And there was the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 1987. And it was a U.S. legislative act that specified that recipients of federal funds must comply with the civil rights laws in all areas, not just in a particular program or the activity from which they were receiving federal funding. So, now there's some cases that you future lawyers need to know about. The first civil rights case dealing with race-based discrimination in the United States of America was Dred Scott versus Stanford. That was an 1857 case. In that case, the Supreme Court ruled that Americans of African descent, whether they be free or slaves, were not American citizens and could not sue in federal court. The court also ruled that Congress lacked power to ban slavery in U.S. territories. Finally, the court declared that the rights of slave owners were constitutionally protected by the Fifth Amendment because their slaves were categorized as property. The next case was Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896. In this case, the Supreme Court upheld a Louisiana law requiring railroads to separate blacks and whites into different passenger cars. The court affirmed the idea that race could be segregated by law as long as the public facilities made available to each race were equal but separate. That's where that concept came from, or separate but equal. Then there's a case that many don't know about, um, Karamatsu versus the United States. It was a 1944 case. The court in that case, the Supreme Court in that case, upheld the conviction of an American of Japanese descent who had been prosecuted for remaining in California after the 1942 presidential order designating much of the West Coast as a military area and requiring the relocation of most Japanese Americans from California and the other Western states. That particular case was overruled, and it led to Japanese Americans getting reparation. I'll talk about that in another another show. Another important case is Shelley versus Kramer. This was a 1948 case. This decision held that racially restrictive covenants in property deeds are unenforceable. And in this case, the covenants were terms or obligations improperly stated in deeds that limited property rights only to Caucasians, excluding members of other races. In essence, this meant that a joint development uh, could have it such that black or brown people could not uh, move into that neighborhood. And Shelley versus Kramer uh, uh, overcame that particular restrictive covenants. The next important case is Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954, the year that I was born and what my folks put so much stock into and one of the reasons why I have a very good education and I will share that with you on another show, but that case said that segregated schools, public schools, were unconstitutional. So it was an antidote to that separate but April. But... There was another Brown versus the Board of Education, which in some in some respects allowed the slowing down 
of the integration of schools because the court determined that integrating schools should be done with all deliberate speed. And so some states use that as a foot dragging mechanism. And I'll share with you that story about what happened to me. <laughs> and the next case is Bailey versus Patterson. It was a 1962 case. The Supreme Court ruled to prohibit racial segregation in interstate and interstate travel. So those are the key. And then, oh, Baki. That was um, a case that was decided in uh, 78 that universities may take into account um, uh, race as a factor for allowing uh, young people to come into the university. But the case that has that's causing the heartburn right now is Shelby County versus Holder. That's where the Supreme Court basically put the big kibosh on the Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965. So when we get together next time, we're going to continue our discussion. But as always here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including informing ourselves about the laws of the land that on the one hand empower us to have a franchise, while others seem to take it away with the other hand. So until we get together again, and as much as uh, it appears that we're all going to be dealing with variants of COVID-19 for the foreseeable future, I once again ask you to please get vaccinated and boosted. And even if you have all your shots, but especially if you don't, please take the necessary precautions to protect not only yourselves and your families, but all of those, all of us that you come in contact with by keeping your social distance and washing your hands. Till next time, take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.